0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, all. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church and delighted to be with you again this morning as we journey through the book of Acts. We've been in Acts for quite some time now, although I believe we're actually going through it pretty quickly. Uh, we're, we have an ambitious goal of getting through the Acts before the end of the year, and I think we're on track to do that. Uh, when we think about the book of Acts, we really are thinking about the historic picture of the early church, what it was, who this movement encapsulated, what did they do, what did they accomplish, and what we can learn from them. And from the moment of Jerusalem onward, now throughout the Roman Empire, we've been seeing God work through his people. We've seen it miraculously with with explosive growth at times. We've seen it uh, through healings and miracles and through powerful sermons and through these great men of faith called the apostles. But oftentimes, when we really look into the inner dynamics of the early church, we find that it's not just through the voice of a few that the church grew. But it was, in fact, through a slow, patient growth of ordinary people and their faithfulness to the mission of God that God used in extraordinary ways. Now, this reminds me of sports, because I love sports. Uh, I, I'm a huge sports fan. And oftentimes, when we think about sports, we think about the, the great superstars, the heroes. Oh, we already got a picture up. All right, we'll get into this one in just a minute. We think about the great superstars and heroes of these particular sports. But oftentimes, there are supporting cast members that contribute to their greatness, there are other people who come alongside of them, and we can argue without those people, they would not be who they are today. Here's probably one of the most famous ones. We got our man MJ, who, unlike LeBron, did not need a super team to win championships. Oh, burn, right? Uh, so, all, right all right, all right, all right. Let's calm down. We got to get back to back to the gospel here. All right, so so MJ had Scottie Pippen, right? Now now Pippen was never in the limelight he was never uh, received the accolades that that MJ did but you could argue that Michael Jordan would not be as great as he was without his supporting cast uh, next, this is from one of my favorite sports movies of all time. Oh, yeah, the great Rocky Balboa. Anyone love Rocky? Yeah, I grew up on this stuff, all right? Uh, Rocky was, was known for being this, this, this guy who could stand in the ring, and he could take a beating, and he would win miraculously, and he was his underdog champion. But you could argue as you watch the movies that there's no way Rocky would ever be able to stand against the great Apollo Creed if it weren't for Mickey in his corner. Right? Mickey was the guy who trained him, who invested in him, who kept him on the, on the pathway to, to win in victory. Now, this one is a little controversial today, uh, but here we go. Oh, yeah, Tom Brady and his trainer, Alex Guerrero. If anybody doesn't know this guy, uh, he's, he stirred up some controversy in Foxborough throughout the years. But, but you could argue that, and Tom Brady would even say, that in his greatness and all the things that he's accomplished in his career, he would be nothing without his trainer. His trainer who was beside him through it all, his trainer who helped him uh, through the process of, of still amazingly playing at the level he is at the age that he is. And then finally, we see this champion of sports. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, that's, uh, that's young Wesley, uh, 2007, varsity baseball. Man, what that, 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 that state finals team would be nothing without this guy, right? Right. I mean, look, I was trying to look so hard in this photo because I was, I was probably 120 pounds dripping wet. And, uh, and you yeah, know, look, they couldn't accomplish what they accomplished without me warming the bench like I did for them. So ah, it was great. You can take that picture off, Nick. We don't need to see that anymore. OK, when we think about this, though. We really get to our main point today, which is simply this, that God accomplishes his plan through ordinary people. You see, when we think about these these legends of sports, and we think about even the, the New Testament church, and we see guys like Paul, we see guys like Peter, we think they are these incredible men of, of force and faith, but we often see that God works through the means of ordinary people all around them to accomplish his purposes. And in fact, one church historian said it this way. He says, when you look at the early church, what makes the early church so unique is that it wasn't just an institution led by a few leaders that contributed to the health of a society. He actually says that the movement was dynamic, it was powerful, and it was because of the small decisions that thousands upon thousands of ordinary people made in the ordinary course of their lives, because they knew that they were needed to contribute to the mission. That's how God changed the world through the early church. Through thousands upon thousands of ordinary people who make it their ordinary course of lives to see that what God has given them, who God has created them, is to contribute to this mission. In other words, as our main idea states here, that God accomplishes his plan through ordinary people. And today we're going to enter into the city of Corinth, and even later to see where these men and women of the faith here go to Ephesus. And we're going to see in this passage today that God not only works through the giants of the faith like Paul, but he works through often the supporting cast members that we regularly even hear about in the Bible for his purposes, for his glory to change, literally, the Roman Empire. And there's three things in our outline we're going to see that we share, that we contribute with these who have gone before us. And here's our outline. We're going to see the mindset that we share with these early Christians, these people who are not recognized in the same light as we might see a Paul or a Peter. We're also going to learn from the practices that they engaged in as they lived their lives on mission. And finally, we're going to see the power that sustains them and the same power that sustains us as we continue to fulfill God's promises and his plans in this city. Let's go and jump in the text, the mindset we share. Verse one, after this says, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was this, of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so here we meet our characters today in our story. The Apostle Paul, this giant of the faith who has left Athens, this, uh, this, this kind of ph- philosophical uh, center of the, uh, the empire, and he has gone now to Corinth. And as he's in Corinth, we then see this other couple. Priscilla and Aquila. And they've both made their way to Corinth for different reasons, by different means. Now, the city of Corinth, just so we're tracking where we are, you can put that map up if you want to there, Nick. The city of Corinth is, is on this track we call the second missionary journey of Paul. Now, if you look at the bottom tip of Greece there, uh, that last stop in Greece is where we're at now in Corinth. And Paul's now going to make his journey. We're going to see this in the travel log in this text. He's going to make his journey back to Jerusalem to complete his second missionary journey. And so as he's in this place of Corinth, you can see that it's actually a very strategic location. Uh, Corinth was known for being this hub of commerce between the east and west sea routes intersecting with the north and south sea routes. But like many port cities, Corinth was also known for its sexual promiscuity, its sexual immorality. We find that the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthian church is filled with this. In fact, their word, uh, Corinthian, um, literally translated was to live like like a Corinthian was to say that you lived immorally. Uh, Even the Romans in Rome looked down upon the Corinthians because of their sexual promiscuity. And so here we have Paul, we have Priscilla and Aquila, and they have quite a challenge ahead of them. The city of Corinth is no easy task to bring the gospel to bear. And so they arrive, and what does Paul do? Well, the text says, if we go back to it, uh, that he arrives here in Corinth, and he begins to do the same thing he normally does. He goes to the synagogues, and he begins to reason in the scriptures. But Priscilla and Aquila do something a little bit different. When they arrive, they set up shop, because they're tent makers, And tent makers or leather workers in the Roman Empire would go to these commerce cities and they would set up their shop and and primarily they would sell tents, but they would sell other leather goods. Now, we notice here that they didn't come here just because of their business. They came here because they were pushed out of Rome. Uh, They were pushed out, as the second uh, century historian Suetonius tells us, that Claudius, the the emperor, expelled the Jews because of an uproar about this man named Crestus which many scholars believe was a Latin transliteration of Christos, meaning Christ. In other words, that in Rome, there was this debate happening between the Jews. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? And in doing so, Claudius says, I'm going to expel all the Jews out of Rome to maintain peace. And so they're scattering throughout the Roman Empire. And and Priscilla and Aquila find themselves in Corinth because of that scattering, because they've been displaced. And so what they do, They, they set up their business. And they invite Paul, as he was also a tent maker, to join in. This business. Now, I think there's something very important we can learn from these first few verses. And that is simply this, that as these men and women of the faith, Priscilla and Aquila, who who we don't necessarily know a ton about, but we see here their faithfulness, that wherever they go in the Roman Empire, and they're not just taking their business with them. They recognize that they've been sent there for a purpose. They recognize that it wasn't just by random occurrence that they found themselves in Corinth that God had actually sent them with a purpose. And this is the mindset that we share with both Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. You see, Paul came to Corinth because he recognized that he was going there to spread the gospel message, to plant new churches. He had an intent to go there. Priscilla and Aquila ended there by default, but they had the same mindset, that they were there no matter their circumstances to spread the gospel. Why? Because the early church, both the ordinary and the extraordinary members of that church, believed that everywhere they went, they went there because the risen Jesus sent them there for a purpose. That they found themselves wherever they went with a distinct purpose. And later in this chapter, we see this continue. Uh, right. We see in the, in the second travelogue, uh, starting in verse 18 that after Paul stayed many days in this city, or excuse me, in, uh, there in Ephesus, he then sent Priscilla and Aquila along with him. And so this, this couple is highly mobile, right? They find themselves in Pontus and then in Rome and then in Corinth and then they make friends with Paul and they join Paul to Ephesus. And then we later find out in the New Testament that then they go back to Rome and they go back to Ephesus. I mean, they're going everywhere across the Roman Empire. And notice the mindset that they have along with Paul. Look down uh, in verse 20. He says, when they asked him to stay longer, Paul, he declined. So this is a prelude for what's coming next, that Paul is going to be asked to stay in Ephesus longer after he leaves Corinth. But notice what Paul says in this text. He says in verse 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus. You see, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila recognized that wherever they went, they went with a distinct purpose, that God had them where he had them for a reason. Now, we get this term that uh, Natalie and even Katie were alluding to earlier. This idea of being sent is the word we get, missions or missionary the sent one. And we think about this oftentimes in kind of the, the the Christian culture as someone who's this ordained kind of full-time missionary who goes uh, across the the seas, who goes to a foreign land, and they invest all their time and energy to share the gospel and to be with people in another context. But when we really look at the root word of what it looks like to be sent to be on mission, we really find that it means to be on purpose. You see, to be missional means to be purposeful. And we all have things in life that drive us, that we find purpose in. We all have things in life that we are trying to find value and mission in that we orient our lives around. It's something that makes us distinctly human, that every single person, not just people of faith, not just the great philosophers who debate this, that everybody's trying to find, what is my place in life? What is my purpose? What is my value? It's from the the, the largest questions of life down to the smallest decisions. Right. If you were to, to train for a marathon, if that was your purpose, you would reorient your life around that. What you eat, how you sleep, how you trained would be very intentional for that end result. Now we find this even in the silliest examples. I mean, you could just literally, like I did this week, go to Whole Foods and you will find that we are trying to seek purpose and intention in life. Here's what I mean by this, I took my my daughters, Abby and I took Ellie and Harper to get cake one night, because we're great parents, right? Uh, And that's what you do, you give your kids a sugar rush right before bedtime. So we go to Whole Foods, we're like, okay, you can pick out one slice of cake from the bakery, it's the go, and Ellie picks out this like double chocolate cake, that was like the cheap one, right? Like the the bakery one, well, cheap for Whole Foods standards, okay, you're tracking with me, right? So she picks out that one. We're like, okay, that's great. She's got the ingredients on it. It's good. It's simple. Well, then Harper decides that she wants to pick out the organic, farm to table, super expensive, triple the price, blueberry cake from this this company uh, that locally sources their sugar and locally sources their flour. And it has this long explanation for why this cake is like $12 for this little slice. And I looked on the label and I realized that even in the smallest decisions we make, we're trying to find value and meaning in life. Because the slogan of this cake was, baking the world into a better place. (laughs) Like literally, you eat this cake, you're going to have more meaning in life, right? It's going to bring more purpose to your life. You're doing more good in life. And we find this throughout life that we're seeking to find meaning, purpose in the things that we do. And likewise, we've ended up in D.C. for all different circumstances, Right, Some of you have come to this place today and you've come here because you're in school or because of work or because of some desire and ambition of yours to be in this city or maybe you just picked on a map and said, I want to be in D.C. like a crazy person and you ended up staying and you actually enjoy it, right? However you found yourself in this city, no matter the circumstances, no matter how you've come to this place, as a Christian, your purpose for being here is because the risen Jesus Christ has sent you. You're not here by random chance. No matter how long you stay in this city, no matter how long you find yourself here, you have been here because the risen Christ has sent you. And this is the mindset of the early church, that no matter where they went, no matter what circumstances got them there, they were there because Jesus Christ sent them. Because the gospel message reminds us that Jesus doesn't just love us and reserve a place for us in heaven one day. The gospel reminds us that this life here and now has meaning and purpose. That every step of our lives is filled and infused with the purposes of God. And he has sent us here in Washington, D.C. for those purposes. And so as this text starts and we see this simple thing of these tent makers bringing their business to the city of Corinth and Paul joining in, it seems so simplistic, but God is working through these ordinary individuals because they had a mindset that they were there for a purpose, that they were there to fulfill those purposes of the risen Jesus. Now, if we believe that we've been sent here for a purpose, then secondly, we're going to engage in certain practices. There's certain things that are going to naturally overflow if we have a purpose. And we continue to read in verse 4. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians heard Paul and believed and were baptized. And so here we have these tit makers. And they come into the city, and Paul's joining them in this work of tent making. And at nighttime, he's sharing Jesus. And during the daytime, he's working hard. He's laboring to make tents. And on his day off on the Sabbath, what does he do? He goes into the place of worship of the synagogue, and he begins to proclaim that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there's something we can really learn here from Paul, and that is the value of hard work, right? I mean, here's the man that oftentimes we look at him and we think about his giftedness, but we see a guy who is laboring hard. He is working hard the sake of the gospel message. And then his friends arrive, Timothy and Silas. And when they arrive, they bring encouraging news. Now we know from other places in the New Testament that what they're bringing here is not only a report uh, from the church in Thessalonica of how they're doing, but they also bring a monetary uh, fund for Paul. They they bring a gift from the Macedonian church for Paul to relieve his, his work efforts as a tent maker, so that he could devote more time to teaching. Now, I think there's a practical application for us here that regardless of who we are in this room, we all can sacrifice together for the sake of the gospel. We see this beautiful picture in the Macedonian church that wherever Paul went, they were supporting the work that he was doing. They were joining in on the work that God was doing through Paul. So Paul receives this gift. He receives this encouragement from his friends, Timothy and Silas. And what does he do? He continues to press in and sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. And this is really the important step that we engage in. This is the important practice that we engage in, that we too, if we believe we've been sent here for a purpose, will share the truth of Jesus. Whether you're a teacher or a tent maker, it's the same promise, that if God has brought us here for a purpose, then why not share about our risen Savior? And what does Paul do? He devotes his time, and he would even later write to the Corinthian church. He says, when I was there, I resolved to know nothing except this, that Jesus Christ in him crucified. Whether you're a tent maker or a teacher, whether you're a preacher or you work on Capitol Hill, to be a Christian is to gauge in this practice, to make Christ known, to make him known. And verse 5 really sums it up nicely for us, It's that what was Paul doing? Paul was reasoning, he was trying to persuade that Christ Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, what Paul is reminding us here is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. As he talks to these Jews, he's reasoning with the scriptures to remind them that the Old Testament points to him, that the Gospels reveal him, that the epistles that he would later write would reflect back on him, and that the book of Revelation looks forward to him. It's all about Jesus. And as he reasons with them, and he's sharing this truth, we notice that their response isn't very positive, is it? They oppose him. They revile him. And so Paul quotes the Old Testament here, and he shakes off his, his garments, and he washes his hands, and he says, I'm innocent, and he moves on. Now, I would encourage you probably not to add that to your gospel presentation, right? <laughs> Blood be on your own heads, right? Uh, don't, don't say that line. Uh, but, but what we're learning here is, a, is an important lesson for us, that when we share the truth of Christ, some may not like it. Some may oppose it. Some may revile us for it. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians, some will see it as folly, but others will see it as salvation. And we learn from Paul here a great lesson, that it's not our responsibility to make someone believe. It is not our responsibility to try to make someone like us. And in fact, if that is our end game of our testimony to Jesus Christ, that if people would just like me, if if people would just like who I am, or if I could just make someone believe, then most likely we might not share the whole truth. Perhaps I say, or we'll cheapen the beauty of who Jesus Christ really is. But Paul makes it his aim to, in love, for these people, to share the truth of the risen Savior Jesus Christ. And the goal here, the responsibility, is that as we engage in this practice. Is that we share it. We make it available to others. And Paul says, when you do that, you're innocent. You've done your part. We trust God with the rest. We don't try to force people to believe. We don't try to cheapen it to make it more palpable for someone to understand. We simply share the truth of who Jesus Christ is in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his love. And then Paul says, I'm innocent. So what does he do? Does he get discouraged when they revile him, when they oppose him? Does he just give up? No. What does he do? He goes next door. I love that, right? He just says, I'm just going to go next door, uh, to the house next door, to this guy named Titius Justice. Titius is a, is a worshiper of God, meaning that he was one who believed he feared God, but he didn't know the resurrected Jesus. But he opens his house to Paul, and Paul goes in, and Paul begins to share the gospel more and more, and guess what happens next? This man named Crispus comes to faith in Christ. What a great name, Crispus, right? It makes me think of Krispy Kreme. Um, but but Crispus Kreme here, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, probably brought the donuts too. Uh, he, he was the ruler of the synagogue, right? Probably the most, un, I mean, just think about this. This is the most unlikely guy to come to faith in Jesus, the ruler of the synagogue. And Paul continues to share the truth. And what does God do? He opens this man's heart. He believes, his whole household believes, and then we see more Corinthians believe, and a church is birthed in Corinthian. The Corinthian church is birthed. The book of Acts actually gives us a lot of confidence to share the hope we have in Christ. Because I know it's discouraging when we think about the people in our lives who do not know Jesus. I know it can be disheartening at times when we look around in the city and we think, God, why do you have me here? God, I feel like I can't break through to my coworkers. I feel like I can't break through to my neighbors. And we should be encouraged from the book of Acts that as Paul and as these other men and women of the faith continue to share the gospel, the most unlikely converts came to know Jesus Christ. It happened in Corinth and it could happen in D.C., and we feel discouraged, and we feel like we just can't get a breakthrough with a friend, well, sometimes we need to just take a move out of Paul's playbook. Go to the next door. Continue to press on. Continue to share your faith and trust God with the results. Now we continue in the passage and we see that uh, Paul's about to uh, continue to, to find some opposition from the Jews. And before we get there, I want us to just look towards the end of the passage because I don't want us to leave our, our friends Priscilla and Aquila. Because they're doing some incredible work as well. They're showing us what it looks like to live our faith out as well. And we jump down to verse 24. And now they found themselves in Ephesus, and there's a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who has come to Ephesus. He's an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He has been instructed by the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here's what's happening. Priscilla and Aquila, as they continue to see fine purpose and continue to see their lives as living for the mission, the purpose of God, they find themselves in Ephesus. And through the regular, ordinary practices of their lives, they continue to minister to others. And there's this man named Apollos, this eloquent speaker, who comes in the city and he's proclaiming the gospel. What do they do? They reach out to him and they invite him into their home. Let's not look over that for a second. What they do is they extend the love of Christ to this man. They invest in his life. And we see this happen throughout their ministry. If you look back at verse 3, what do they do with Paul? When Paul arrives, they not only invite them into their house for him to live, they invite him to work alongside of them in their job. In other words, what Priscilla and Aquila, the practice that they engage in is what we call hospitality. See, we're not only sharing the truth of Jesus if we believe that the resurrected Jesus has sent us here for a purpose. We're also willing to demonstrate the love of Jesus by inviting people into our lives. And Priscilla and Aquila, they model this so well for us. They're willing to invite people into their lives, into their jobs, into their homes, to make those places of ministry. And we see this throughout the book of the New Testament. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in other places. And 1 Corinthians 16 tells us, as Paul writes, he says that Aquila and Prisca, which is another name for Priscilla, uh, together with the church in their house, send you heartily greetings in the Lord. In other words, this couple not only invited Apollos, so they only invited Paul into their home, but they actually invited the entire church <laughs> into their house in Corinth. And then we get to Romans 16, and we see them again in Rome. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned there as well. Greet Presca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. And so they only had one church meeting in their house in one city. They then went to another city, and guess what the church did? Gathered in their home. This couple modeled the very ordinary habit and practice of opening up their lives, opening up their hearts, opening up their homes to share the love of Christ with others. And as we think about our lives here in Washington, D.C., it's not just that we're active in sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. If we believe God has sent us here for a purpose, then we will show the love of Christ. We will invite people into our lives, just like Priscilla and Aquila. You don't have to have a Huge house for this to be the case for you. You don't have the best job to practice hospitality. It just takes a a type of intentional commitment to use what God has given you to welcome and invite others in the love of Christ. And then thirdly, we find one more application here for us, and that is that they intentionally build up others in Jesus. They don't invite this man, Apollos, in their house, but what do they do? The text says in verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more Accurately. Paul invests in Priscilla and Aquila, and then Priscilla and Aquila go, and guess what they do? They invest in the lives of others. And this great man Apollos, who comes from the the, the philosophical and educational center of the Roman Empire at the time, Alexandria, he was trained, he knew philosophy, he knew the, the, the scriptures, he could reason from the scriptures with the best of them. He was this formal trained teacher, comes in the city and this untrained couple, leather workers invite them into his home, and they begin to invest in him with the knowledge they have of the scriptures. It's a beautiful picture that no matter who we are, no matter what background we come from, we too can invest in the lives of others. We can take what we know, take what we have, and transfer it to others. And through these ordinary practices of hospitality, of just faithfully sharing the gospel message, of investing in the lives of others, we see the the church grow into this powerful movement throughout the Roman Empire. Now, let's go back to verse 9. Because, you know, when you think about this for a second, when you think about how God uses us in our lives for his purposes, you know, even when we have that mindset, even when we engage in these practices, there's going to be moments where we're going to be weak. There's going to be moments where we're going to feel discouraged. There's going to be moments where we're going to feel beaten up. And what sustains us in those moments? Well, let's look at the scriptures in verse 9. As Paul was in Corinth, the Lord said to him one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and six months teaching the word of God among the people. And then it says, verse 12: But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul. So again, he's under attack. And they brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14: But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, who was the new ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. There's what's happening. Paul, in the season where church is being birthed in Corinth, is weak, is fearful. Maybe he's in a season of burnout. Maybe he's in a season where the the pressing evil of this culture is just too much for him. What we see here in verse 9 is simply this, that, that Paul is human just like us. Here's a man, a great man of faith, a man who has just seen the ruler of the synagogue come to faith in Christ in his household. A man who has just seen a church birthed in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And even with all that, he's fearful. He's weak, just like we would be at times. He's perhaps disheartened, discouraged. And so Jesus comes to him with this vision and reminds him, of something. It reminds him and builds him up in something. He says, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. That phrase right there is so important for us today because what Paul is being reminded of is the promises of God. You see, the power that sustains us when we go through life, and we find ourselves in moments just like Paul, where we're engaging these practices of the early church, we're sharing our faith, where we're inviting people into our lives, where we're investing our lives in the lives of others. And we find ourselves in moments of weakness, in moments of discouragement, in moments where we feel like we just can't get over the hump. Where do we go to sustain us? in the promises of God, in the promises of the gospel, that Jesus says, I am with you. You see, what kept Paul going was not his giftedness. It was not his ability to to lead. It wasn't his own strength. What kept Paul going was that Jesus was with him. Now, we may not have a vision from the Lord today, and you might be thinking, well, if I just had a vision from the Lord, maybe I would feel that power sustaining me, right? We may not have that vision from the Lord right now, but we have the word of God right here written for us. And the promises of scripture are true for us as well. That Jesus is with us, that he will not leave us, that he will not forsake us. And even though there's a specific promise to Paul here that no one in Corinth will harm him, and we see that played out in the rest of this chapter, that no one harms him. He goes through even to the United attack from the Jews that no one harmed him. We still have the promises of Scripture like Romans 8.28 that reminds us that all things are working for our good if we've been called by God. All things are working for our good. In other words, there's nothing that goes through to us that doesn't first go through the sovereign hand of the Lord. He is with us. He is for us. And we find ourselves a moment of discouragement. The power that we can rest upon is the promises of Scripture. So maybe you're in a season of life like that right now. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're downcast. Maybe you're burnt out. Maybe you're realizing that you don't know why you're here in D.C. Maybe you just don't feel like God is moving in your life right now. Today we can come to his word and we can trust in his promises. Just like Paul. We can look to Christ and we can see that he is with us and that he has promised to be with us. And not only has he promised to be with us, but he has promised to work through us. Notice that at the end of the vision, what does Jesus say to him? That I have people in this city. I am working in the hearts of people. And if we find ourselves in D.C. discouraged right now, if we find ourselves downcast, if we find ourselves not knowing how we can continue to press onward, know that Jesus is not only with you, but that He is working through you. And that He has people in this city, that He is working in their hearts at this very present moment. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, where we get to reflect on Jesus Christ and Him crucified we're reminded of the gospel message that sustains us today. We're reminded that God loved us with such an intense love that he sent Jesus Christ on a mission for us. And that mission was not completed when he healed the leopards. That that mission was not completed when he raised a dead man to life. That mission was completed when he was hanging on the cross. When he said, it is finished. When he, at that moment, accomplished what we cannot on our behalf. And you see, the early church, they they were electrified by this love of God. They were electrified by the fact that God came to them in Jesus Christ. And that meant that no matter where God sent them, they knew that he sent them with a purpose because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, their mindset, wherever they went, was that God had them there for a reason. God had them there for a purpose. He had people in those cities that he was calling and that he was drawing to themselves, and he was with them all the way. And so church, let's be encouraged today from this text. No matter where we find ourselves in life, God wants to use you for his purposes and his plans.